This is The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. I'm Daniel Elkert, your host, and today we explore the fundamentals of informed consent with help from our guest, Dr. Jeffrey Barnett, a licensed psychologist, professor of psychology, and associate dean at Loyola University, Maryland. Dr. Barnett is a distinguished practitioner of the National Academies of Practice, has previously served as chair of the Ethics Committee of the American Psychological Association, and has authored over 200 publications focusing on ethics and professional practice issues. Dr. Barnett, welcome to the program. Hi, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to participate this morning. Yeah. So, Jeff, you have been studying professional practice issues like informed consent for many years. To start us off, I'm hopeful, could you share what is informed consent and why is it so important? So, many individuals view informed consent primarily as an ethical requirement and a legal obligation and sort of something just that you have to do and get it out of the way to stay in compliance but it's really so much more than that. And it, it comes from a history of promoting each individual client or patient's autonomy mm-hmm. and in enabling them and empowering them to participate fully in the decision-making about their treatment. So informed consent is a process in which the clinician shares information that's necessary for the client to make a, a reasoned decision about participating, about engaging in the treatment or services being offered or recommended. And that's very different than a much more authoritarian approach where we would just provide the treatment and not even obtain any input from the client. And historically, early on, physicians had a much more of a benevolent authoritarian approach as individuals who were experts and specialists, and they had knowledge, and they would evaluate a patient and then determine the treatment and then provide it. Mm. And over years of malpractice lawsuits and case law resulting from that, rulings have indicated the need to empower clients and to allow them to participate in this decision-making process. So this obligation is something that we do to, at the outset of the professional relationship, really to promote each client's autonomous functioning, to partner with them, and again, to to share this information sufficient so they can make an informed and reasoned decision about, is this something I'd like to participate in? That's very different than it being just provided or forced on them. Yeah. So one of the words that I heard you say is the word process. And I'm wondering, could you say a little bit more about what you meant by that? Certainly. That's actually a very important issue to discuss. Oftentimes, professionals might think that informed consent is a one-time event. It's something you need to just do, maybe be done with, and then you can move on and get get to the real work of treatment or assessment. And the reality is informed consent is this ongoing process. And while we're required to initiate it at the beginning of the professional relationship, it's something that can be modified and updated over time. And even if you have an initial agreement with a patient or client and do a very good job of getting their input um, to help decide how treatment will progress, anytime there is any kind of substantive change to the treatment being offered, we'd wanna update our informed consent agreement. And just as an example, you know, if I regularly meet with a client on Wednesdays at 10 a.m., 
and we're going to meet at 11 next week on Wednesday, that's not something that would require me to update the informed consent agreement. That's not really a substantial change to the services being offered. But if I've been working with someone individually and now I'm recommending bringing their partner into treatment or recommending that they participate in group treatment instead of or in addition to individual, anything that might be considered a substantive or significant change in the agreement and in the treatment being provided, we'd want to get their input and again review with them what is it that we're proposing and ensure we provide adequate information, have an ongoing discussion, and then they can make a decision about if they really do want to participate in this. And so while it's vital that we do inform consent at the outset, it's not so much the timing of it must be done before the first session or in the first 10 minutes of the first session or at the end of the first session. It's really more of you initiate this process and then add to it and update it as might be needed over time. So there's this notion of a substantive change. And I know you gave the example of a partner of a client joining the therapy process. Could you share a few more examples of what might constitute such a substantive change? Sure. So it's possible that you're going to change your treatment approach with the client. I'll give you a great way of thinking about this that often people think informed consent is this, again, this event that occurs up front and then you can move forward with the treatment. But it's possible to share with a client that, you know, my approach is that we're gonna meet two or three times and during that period of these first few sessions, I'm gonna get a good sense of, of who you are and what your goals are, yeah. uh, what your treatment needs are. You're gonna learn about me, see my style. We're gonna discuss, you know, how we might work together and then at the end of this initial assessment phase, then we're going to come together and review what's transpired and I can present to you a proposed treatment plan or course of action. We can discuss it and you can decide if you'd like to participate in that. So again, that's an example of you don't just do informed consent and then start treatment. But even with that initial agreement, other issues can come up over the course of treatment. So if I have a client who I'm treating for depression, and then over the course of treatment, she's doing or he's doing really well, the client might share, oh, and I also have this other issue that now I'd like to work on, you know, that they didn't disclose before. And maybe it takes time for them to be comfortable with the process of treatment and to develop rapport with you and to develop trust. And then they can share other issues that maybe they were more guarded about. And then now we need to sort of renegotiate that informed consent agreement or contract, so to speak, to maybe focus on those new issues. So instead of just depression or anxiety, now they'd like to focus on this eating disorder they hadn't shared or this underlying substance abuse disorder, or I might discover issues about their personality and relationships that I might propose modifying the treatment to address those issues. But again, it would be a discussion, sharing adequate information, and then this sort of shared decision-making process with their active participation. Okay, so as clinically relevant presentations and issues emerge, the psychologist should be reevaluating the nature of this informed consent process and potentially initiating that discussion with the client. And as you're talking, one of the things I'm wondering is in this process that the psychologist goes through, what have you found to be some of the benefits of, of doing that? 
So there are numerous benefits that come with engaging in a thoughtful, well-structured, informed consent process. And again, this highlights why it's not just you know, a stack of papers that someone fills out and signs in your waiting room and then that's it. Uh, that there's much more to this process. But because of this information sharing component to informed consent, it helps to sort of demystify the treatment relationship. Many clients come in feeling very unsure of themselves, maybe anxious or scared, they don't know what to expect, that we have to kind of explain to them, you know, what's involved in this process. And so to demystify it can help them be much more comfortable with participation. The shared decision-making and information sharing helps promote client autonomy, which is one of our ultimate goals and objectives. It can also help set the tone of a collaborative working relationship for the treatment relationship that's going to follow. And so how we sort of start off the informed consent process can lay the foundation for the treatment relationship to follow that will hopefully promote a good working relationship. And again, it promotes shared decision-making. It helps more equal out the imbalance of power that's present frequently in the relationship by sharing information about what's reasonable to expect in the professional relationship. It can help minimize the risk of exploitation of and harm to the client and again, help make it much more collaborative and much less of a top-down approach. It's empowering clients. And again, that's hopefully one of our goals of treatment. And the hope is that it's fulfilling our obligations ethically and legally as well, and perhaps minimizing the risks that a complaint can be filed against us in the future because of misunderstandings. Mm -hmm. Really, ultimately, it has to do with these very positive benefits for the client in terms of how we're starting or initiating this professional relationship. So what I'm hearing from you, Jeff, is that the informed consent process can actually support treatment when it is done properly. So I'm wondering, what are the most important qualities of an informed consent process that is considered valid? So for informed consent to be considered valid, there are actually four criteria that have to be met. The first is that for it to actually be considered informed consent, it has to be given voluntarily. So if there's any form of coercion involved, it wouldn't really actually be informed consent. And that might happen if someone's in a prison environment or an inpatient unit, perhaps, where treatment is provided that maybe the patient isn't interested in having. But there are times when you know, treatment is provided involuntarily. Okay. Uh, but for informed consent, it's given voluntarily. The next component is the client has to actually be competent to provide their consent. And competence has two elements or components. One is they have to have the legal right to give consent. So for example, typically one must be an adult, you know, in most states it's 18 years of age to give consent legally. And then the second aspect of that is one must be competent cognitively and emotionally. So it's possible that a a patient or client who has dementia or who maybe is floridly psychotic, you know, they can't process the information or understand it, they don't have that competence to be able to give their informed consent. And then, and this is a very important one, we actually have to actively ensure each client's understanding of what they're agreeing to. And so we can't just say, do you have any questions? Because you can imagine what the typical response to that would be. People Mm -hmm. just say, no. And often it's because yes. they're overwhelmed and or they 
they can't even process all this information that's coming at them, or they don't want to look bad, and or they don't want to disrupt the process or disappoint the clinician. So oftentimes they won't ask questions. And so it's our obligation through this ongoing discussion and checking in with them and asking questions and clarifying to really ensure that they're understanding the information we're sharing and what they're agreeing to. And then the final component is, is that the informed consent must be documented. And so while it's given verbally, we have a discussion, it, there should also be written materials that the client has that they can review, read, and take it home with them, read it over time, come back perhaps with other questions. And again, this also uh, gets into that issue of the process. We'd want to not just ensure they're understanding once, but review it over time. And then the documentation is vital because this is our tangible record of what's transpired. And so if there's ever a question in the future, our documentation is what will be looked at. I see. So the, there are these four criteria. And this last criteria I heard you discuss is that informed consent needs to be provided both verbally and in writing. And it makes me wonder, when psychologists are creating informed consent documents, what are the most important pieces of information to include? So there are some typical elements to every informed consent agreement. And then there might be others one can add depending on the services being provided and the circumstances. But there are certain basics that would always need to be included. And certainly one would be that most individuals always state that they're interested in hearing about is confidentiality and its limits. And research actually shows that many individuals, members of the public, um, believe that everything that they share with their psychotherapist is com completely confidential. And we know that that's not true, that there are some exceptions to confidentiality under the law. And so confidentiality and its limits is one of those basics of informed consent that every client needs to know about upfront so that in essence, and this does promote their autonomy, that they can then, once they know what the exceptions or limits to confidentiality might be, then they can decide if they want to share something with us. But to not review this information and then they share information and then find out, oh, and I have to report that to the authorities or I have to take this action, that can really feel like a violation of their trust. And so then in addition to confidentiality and its limits, fees and financial arrangements is another one that pretty much everyone wants to know about. You know, does this cost anything? How, how is payment made? What are the costs for different services? You know, if I call you between sessions, do you charge for that or for emails? Is this all covered by my insurance or do I have to pay something? How does all that work? Do you accept credit cards? You know, do you have a fee for late cancellations or missed appointments? So fees and financial arrangements is also another one. And a third very important one is just sort of the nature of the services to be provided. You know, again, what is it that the client's agreeing to? Am I offering four-day-a-week intensive dynamic psychotherapy? Am I offering hypnosis or biofeedback? Is this cognitive behavior therapy once a week? You know, what are the services and what's the likely course of treatment? So they, they need to have a reasonable expectation and understanding of what's to come. There can be many other issues that we can include in informed consent. And depending on the situation, some are more relevant than others. Just very briefly, things like the involvement of third parties, 
Um, so if someone's referred by their employer or by the courts, for example, that changes how informed consent works. Another issue is many clients would want to know about is options and alternatives that are reasonably available to them and their relative risks and benefits. So it's not just here's your treatment, but here are the most widely accepted treatments for these types of difficulties. And here are the pros and cons of each. And again, sharing that information helps them to make a good informed decision. So are these different circumstances where the informed consent document would be modified when psychologists provide different services to different patient groups? And I'm wondering, when you're working with persons who are children or adolescents, individuals who are less than 18, how does the psychologist go about modifying the informed consent process with that group of patients? That's a great question and that's so important because so many of us work with families and work with children and adolescents and technically the parent or guardian, the individual who has the legal right to give consent is the client. That's okay. legally our client. Even though it might be the child or adolescent who we're providing the treatment to and we'll call them our client, but again, legally, it's that parent or guardian who has that right to give the consent. And the child or adolescent actually gives their assent. And what assent means is it's sharing information with the young person at a level commensurate with their age and developmental level. So how I speak to a five-year-old is different than a 12-year-old or a 15-year-old. And we want to share information with them so they can understand what's this all about? You know, who am I and why am I meeting with them? And what am I going to be, what are we going to be doing together? And why have their parents brought them here? Mm. And the goal is to help set the tone for a good working relationship and successful treatment. So they need information as well. And so while they can't technically give their consent and the parent would do that in most situations, depending on their developmental level, not only do we share information with them, but we can include them in the decision-making process. And so typically the older or more sophisticated they are cognitively and emotionally, they can play a greater role in this decision-making process. And you know, technically a parent or guardian legally would have the right to all information shared in the psychotherapy sessions. But I don't know really of any adolescents, for example, who would be open to that and how cooperative would they be? And so there needs to be a discussion amongst everyone involved and have a negotiation of the parents' rights and to help explain to the parents that you know, they have to have some trust in us as clinicians that we will include them in the process as needed. And there are certain times when we will share information with them, perhaps even against the desires of their child or ad you know, the adolescent, but in general, if we can't have some level of confidentiality, most young people aren't gonna be sharing openly and participating fully in the process. And so parents can agree to reduce their rights to access to treatment information. And we can even give examples of when we would include them and share information and when we wouldn't. And typically it has to do with dangerousness types of issues. But the bottom line is um, there's a negotiation there. And while we, allow the young person to participate in this process, you know, commensurate with their abilities, it's still going to be the parent or guardian who gives their consent. 
so it sounds like there's this ongoing negotiation. It reminds me of what you were saying earlier about this truly being a process-oriented professional practice concern. And just if I could ask one follow-up in this area of assent, what kind of language might psychologists use when they are working with a patient who is under the age of 18 in regards to explaining what types of access their parent may may have. And I pose that question with the knowledge of what you said that this could be a challenging piece of information for some for some children and adolescents to grasp. Right. And so what I found is really young children are not concerned at all about information sharing with their parents. And frequently parents can be included in treatment. And I know in my practice, I'll regularly bring the parents in the beginning and get an update from them on how things are going, um, any information they want me to know. I excuse them. I have my session with the young person, but then I'll typically bring the parent or parents back in in the last 10 or 15 minutes and we'll review here, you know, in general, here's what we've worked on today. Here's what, here's what we're going to be working on. Here's how you can help your child this coming week, you know, practicing uh, these strategies or, you know, it depends on the approach to treatment, but again, they're involved in the, in the treatment. At the same time, each young person has to know that if they want to speak to us in confidence, and if there are things they need, that they want to or need to talk about that they are very uncomfortable having shared with their parents, it's best if we had that agreement up front about what types of issues do the parents authorize us to keep in confidence so that we can give their child the, the help that they need, and what are those types of issues when we've agreed with the parents that we will include them or share this information. And as I mentioned before, a lot of this has to do with the age and developmental level of the young person, as well as the types of issues that we're addressing. It's very possible that as they get older, as they're adolescents, they're going to be much more sensitive about their parents having access to information and wanting us to be much more cautious about what we release. And so, as you've mentioned, we'd have these ongoing discussions. And I might say, you know, this sounds like one of those issues we had discussed early on when we met with your parents, when we might need to share this with them. Would mm -hmm. you feel most comfortable telling them, would you like me to bring them in and we can do it here? Would you like me to help you do it? Would you like me to, to lead it? How would you like to proceed? You know, should we role play and practice first? Again, all this can be addressed as a treatment issue. So Jeff, we only have a few more minutes here today, but I want to just check in with you about what resources you would suggest for psychologists who are interested in learning more about informed consent. I'm glad you asked that because obviously we're always learning about this and there, there are numerous articles out there that one can just, you know, do an online search. I have a number of very brief practitioner-focused articles about different aspects of informed consent that are on the website for the Society of Psychotherapy, and one just needs to you know, do an online search for that Society for Psychotherapy. Okay. And I have an, a number of articles there about informed consent. Uh, pretty much every ethics textbook addresses this issue as such a crucial issue. Mm -hmm. And the National Register, in its publication, the Register Report in 2006, had an article by a colleague, Marianne McCabe, specifically on involving children and adolescents 
I see. decisions about medical and mental health treatment and talks about this negotiation process and how to engage in it. So that's a, a good resource as well. Also on this Society for Psychotherapy website, I have one article called Take the Informed Consent Quiz. And it's basically a quiz on different aspects of informed consent, that it's a way of learning about it, but also testing your own knowledge. So between these and just ethics textbooks and the literature in general, these all could be helpful. Great. Well, thank you so much for for sharing those resources, Jeff. We do need to wrap up our podcast for today, but I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Jeffrey Barnett, for joining me on this episode of The Clinical Consult, brought to you by the National Register of Health Service Psychologists.